Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Basha Hooli is a three-time premiership player with the Richmond Football Club. He's played over 200 games and was named in the 2019 All-Australian team. And he's been an incredibly consistent player across the journey, with his rebounding play off half-back a key part of Richmond's success. But as well as his footballing achievements, he's also known as the AFL's most prominent Muslim player. And he's used his position to be a force for inclusion, understanding and respect. Basha has a new memoir written with the assistance of Walid Ali and to chat all about it, he joins me on the line. Basha Hooley, great to have you on Triple R. No worries, thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. And um, first up, massive congratulations on your premiership win this year. It's kind of um, interesting in some respects that your memoir was written before that happened and it's a pretty significant kind of achievement in any footballer's um, life. How did this premiership compare to the other two? Yeah, obviously it's a unique journey this year. Um, uh, as a competition, obviously we're challenged from... Uh, from all different angles, so it's, it's a credit for the competition to continue. Um, not not the way we all wanted wanted it to be, with no crowds and uh, having it to you know move move to Queensland. But um, yeah, it's one of those years that if you win it, which we did, um, everyone you know one hell of a journey uh, and one that you'll always remember far greater than any other. Then if you don't win, then it's like well, almost it's like a, a year where you, just, you throw it, you know, and and almost say to yourself that. Uh, yeah, it kind of was a waste of a year, but um, yeah, for us it was just uh, about uh, you know being in a good position and and then and going going to to the end because we felt like we were confident enough that you know our our structures, our our game plan, and our style um, allows us to, to to be in the best position to to you know to be there at the final uh, final week of the season. So yeah, one one to remember definitely. Um, the the ultimate, I mean, the best feeling was, was the 2017 Grand Final, it being the first one yeah. and probably going in as underdogs and never really tasted that sort of uh, success before. But, you know, obviously being blessed to, to be part of three is, uh, is something special as well, but also probably um, something that will reflect on a little bit more later on in life. We're not now. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, totally. And I mean, it's, um, you know, you were very close to, if not, uh, you know, in some people's eyes, best on ground in the other two grand finals. Had a little bit of a quieter game this time around, but it came out, of course, that you injured your calf pretty early on in that match. How's the recovery going? And um, I guess, is it looking like, you, you know, you'll, you'll be ready to, to jump into preseason training proper? Oh, not yet. No, not yet. I'll, uh, this, this one will take me a little bit longer. For those who have done a calf before, they're a funny, they're a funny, uh, funny little injury. Um, for me, previously, I've done it two or three times, so it's taken me three to four weeks. But this one, after two weeks, I'm still, I still haven't... Uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty painful at times. Um, but, yeah, that's all... Uh, timing of it was pretty well, and I've got plenty of time to recover. So I'm sure by the time pre-season come up, comes and um, I, I don't get any hiccups, I'll be, I'll be ready to train fully. So that's in a couple of months' time. Yeah, good to hear. And I guess, I mean, I mentioned that this book was written before you, you know, of course, won the premiership just a few weeks ago. And it, it struck me as kind of rare in a lot of ways for a football player to write a memoir when they're still playing, when, you know, they haven't, haven't really retired and um, kind of finished their football playing journey so much. Why did you want to write this book at this point in time? Uh, to be honest, I, I just, um, 
just went with the flow to be, to be quite honest. And uh, maybe Penguin was, was banking on me retiring this year. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, and and not, not banking on us winning another premiership. But with a, with a, it's another chapter that, that needs to be included later on. Um, I don't know. But to, to, for me to, to give up the game right now, I think it's, it's crazy, particularly after this year, what we went through. And for me, it was like, because I only played half the season with, with me staying back home. I feel like I feel like I haven't really. It's not a full, uh, not fully fulfilled in in a way. And I felt like, it, yeah, like I said, it was interrupted the year where I'm, I'm not just done yet. So uh, I'll go I'll go again next year and uh, and see how I feel next year. But um, yeah, definitely still enjoy my football at the moment. Yeah, there's a lot of Richmond fans listening. I'm sure that are very pleased to hear that. <laughs> um, but I want to go back to your childhood, um, growing up in the western suburbs. Of a, as a massive Blues fan, growing up in the '90s and that you know classic '95 team with the likes of Kudafidis, um, you know Diesel Williams and and Mil Hanna, a Lebanese player who kind of preceded you. What role did football play in your life back then when you were a kid? Footy, footy was everything to us. The only thing is that. We just we didn't have our parents uh, following, you know. They 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 weren't very supportive of it. But as a young kid, mate, the football was in our hands all the time. And um, around the neighbourhood, it was just uh, setting your driveway driveway fence as goals. And you just um, you know, any time you can spend with the football in your hands, we do it. So yeah, we we loved it. My older brothers played it. I followed in their footsteps. It was in their footsteps. And as a community, we were, we were all. By, by AFL rather than soccer or basketball. But, um, yeah, I mean, I'm so grateful that I've, I took it up and, uh, and then being, being able to fulfil such a journey. Yeah, and uh, I mean, you, you sort of touched on some of the, uh, I guess, difficulties, I suppose, when, um, you know, your parents, for example, weren't necessarily so into the idea of you playing footy as, um, you know, your older brothers had. Tell us about how that all happened, how you actually got into sort of playing in a team, because it was your brother, Khalid, wasn't it, who kind of very much yeah. pushed for that to happen? Yeah, he did. I mean, my brother was a person that used to always push boundaries and, uh, it was almost like when he was younger, it was like whatever my parents would say, he'd do the opposite. <laughs> I, I don't know why, just young, daring, etc. But obviously, he's, uh, he's changed a lot now after having four kids and uh, kind of repaint them in, in a way. But look, for me, he was just uh, he's seen the passion that I that I had, and you know, I was always to go watch him train, watch him play football, and you know, was just eager, waiting for sirens to go so I can go and have a kick of the football. He just seen the love. And the passion I had for the for the game, and um, and, and knew that um, I, could, I could kick the ball all right. Uh, so he just felt like um, at the time, you know, just go to a local club and see, see how I go, and then uh, yeah, uh, turned out alright. One day, is, <laughs> yeah, it turned out alright. Then I uh, I was getting a list of training, getting picked up by, by the coach, and uh, and then life went on from there. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad he he took that little little risk because as a young boy, I was. I was pretty shy, and, and I would have never taken that risk. Uh, from, you know, obviously, being my parents not supportive of it. Yeah, it's interesting to reading about your um, kind of you know childhood playing footy with with mates and that sort of thing because you know often on the the AFL stage you know a lot's been made of you being sort of different because you're a, a Muslim player, but you write how you know that was not at all the, the nature of your experience growing up because there were so many kind of Lebanese kids who you were you were playing footy with all the time. Yeah, as a junior, I was. I was playing, particularly in my first two years, I was playing with, uh, with a fair few Lebanese kids. But then as I got older, I don't know if the young young kids just um, dropped away or 
Um, I played for a club, a sports football club, and um, there, there were a lot of young uh, Muslim Yemeni, Lebanese kids around. But uh, in my team, there's always probably one or two maximum playing with me. So um, having that sort of comfort, that was really good. And then obviously my dad was, was supporting me after year one. And he had people to talk to, and he felt felt um, like you know there was a reason for him to go. And then as years went on, he just started to make friends with all the other parents, and uh, you know it became his big family. Um, so yeah, I mean back then the, it, it was uh, big, but now it's much bigger because the parents now are the next generation. They're supporting their kids in all different types of sports, which is great to see. Yeah, totally. And there's there's a number of people who you talk about in the book as playing a really pivotal role in, uh, I guess, you sort of making it at the, at, the, at the AFL level and really pushing you to kind of go to the next step and, and feel like it was definitely kind of a, a scene that you should be part of as well. I wonder if you can talk about some of those pivotal figures and how they encouraged you to kind of, um, you know, continue to pursue this dream of playing AFL when, you know, in some uh, circumstances, it might have been a little bit tricky, particularly as, as some of those, um, you know, other kind of Muslim kids you were playing with started to drop off. Yeah, I had I had two guys in particular who who really mentored me through the process and, and motivated me. Um, Muhammad Bakker was a guy who played um, VFF, VF, VFA football uh, at Williamstown and loved loved the game, but just didn't take it to the next step. Um, who who kind of took me under his wing from probably the ages of fourteen to about eighteen in particular. Particularly in the last two years of my uh, TAC Cup football, uh, 17, 18, where things started to get really serious and started to ramp up, and, and he started to go. He went out and you know spoke to friends uh, that were were big in the game or, or you know had been part of the game and, and knew knew the ins and outs and um, what it takes to become an AFL footballer. And you know he fully fully invested in me, and it just goes to show that in life it's, it's very important to. Uh, to find someone that, that that really cares for your goals, um, and you'll, you'll always find the minimum one person out there that truly cares and, and is willing to do whatever it takes to, to help you go to that next step. And so, the message for the youth—I don't know if much of the youth are listening now this time of the day because they're probably at school—but um, you know, always uh, seek seek help and advice from those that, that truly can. Uh, like I said, you'll always find someone that that will really invest in you. Um, and then this other person was. Was, was Ziad. Ziad Ziggy Kadua was a guy who, who was also a young Lebanese Muslim uh, boy living in the area. He was about three years older than me and he was going through the ranks of Western Jets and Spotswood. So he was, he was ahead of me and, and he just knew that whatever didn't work for him um, or whatever he, you know, steps he didn't take, he helped me take. So kind of playing, playing on his shoulders to an extent and, 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 and learning from his experiences. So he helped me a lot. And it, it was a guy that just took me under his wing and helped me along the way. So very important to, to, to look for people that really uh, care for you out there and, um, and there will always be at least one person that is willing to, to go out of their way to make you a better person, a better, better athlete. Yeah, speaking with Basha Hooley, three-time premiership player with the Richmond Footy Club, all about his brand-new memoir, Out Through Penguin and Random House Australia. And, I mean, in some cases, I imagine over sort of your journey, and it's definitely was my experience growing up and playing junior footy, um, you know, football clubs aren't always the most inclusive places. They can be kind of paradoxical at times where, you know, there's a strong um, kind of sense of, of brotherhood in some ways, but also if you are seen as, as in any way different, that can be a really 
really difficult thing um, sort of to navigate. And there were definitely sort of teammates I had in, in the early years who kind of found that. Um, what sort of change did you see within football clubs throughout your journey to make them sort of more inclusive places where, where someone from, you know, kind of a, a non-white background um, yeah. could feel very much part of a team and part of a club? Yeah, I mean, I think being, uh, excuse my, my uh, uh, me for saying this in a way, but being, being a little bit um, kind of uh, being one of the best players in the team, uh, probably in the league as such, I, I had that special treatment. Um, so uh, as a young person, I was, I was still very shy and all my religious practices, I, I kept them um, to myself and confidential. Um, because, like you said, the environment, I, I was worried about how I was going to be accepted because the you know, reality is I had a few differences that wasn't just a norm at a football club. Um, but as years went on, I remember when I got to the age of 16 and I was captain in Victoria and I felt like that was a, it was a good time to stand up and, and, you know, speak to people about my faith. And, um, you know, I was rooming with two people that never never seen a Muslim pray or never seen anyone, in, anyone pray, but... I had to pray in front of these these two teammates, and uh, that, that was kind of my turning point in my life, where I, I, I took that moment as a, as a moment to, to be proud of my identity and start to teach and be be proud of, I guess, what, what I'm all about. Um, and as the years have gone on, I've been very very passionate to go back and, and speak to regional clubs and 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 how to make a club a bit more inclusive and welcoming. And now we're seeing, you know, people not only from a from a from a Muslim faith, but um, you know, people from an African background and an Asian background coming into their game and feel so inclusive. Mm. So that's the reality. You know, at the top end, it's like that. It's very welcoming and it welcomes people from all different walks, different parts and um, and different walks of life. But uh, from a community level, that's what we're trying to do from, 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 from an AFL perspective is try to educate, um, you know, regional managers, coaches, etc. how to accommodate for people from, from, from different backgrounds. And, uh, you get so many questions thrown at you, and uh, and everyone's willing to um, make people feel very comfortable uh, in the environment. So it has grown a, a hell of a lot, particularly from my days. And then even earlier in my days, my brothers playing football, they struggled, really, really struggled um, from a culture and, and a religious perspective where they weren't taken in as well. Mm. Uh, but today, there is absolutely no excuses because um, all clubs out there are willing to, to offer their... You know, they're, they're, they're open hands to, 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 you know, to, to accept you as a person, so regardless of what faith and what culture you belong to. Yeah, um, you're right about sort of your career beginning at the at the AFL level with Essendon and sort of the you know the bond you had with um, Kevin Sheedy there and the high performance coach John Quinn who you know was was really accommodating in terms of you know handing over his office whenever you, you needed to pray and 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 you know broad, more broadly kind of accepting you as, as very much part of the club and and encouraging others to learn from you as well and I mean that sort of changed at Essendon when those figures left and then you've written a lot about your kind of deep love for Richmond. And, and the strength of your bond with Trent Cochin and, and Damian Hardwick. Do you imagine you could have had the career that you have ended up having if you were at a, a different club and didn't end up at the Tigers? Probably not, because at the time I was 22, 23 years old and I was very uh, comfortable with my values, my, 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 my faith values and, and the way I went about life. So I reckon any club that I, that I walked into or would have gone to, most likely would have accepted me as a person because... Um, yeah, I was true to my values, and, that's, and, and more importantly, I was, I was a person that was brought up on on high levels of respect. And, and a person walks around with that sort of uh, characteristics, I think naturally people welcome you and, 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 and make you feel comfortable. 
Um, it just it just happened to be Richmond. So as a code, as a, as, a, as an AFL code, we we are so far advanced in the other code around the country when it comes to welcoming welcoming people from all walks of life. And I'm I'm really passionate about that, and I, I really mean this because I've been part of the multicultural program, the AFL now for ten or eleven years, and. Mm. They're very, very passionate about that about, about that area because they understand people are entering our game from, from different backgrounds, different cultures, and for our game to continue to grow, uh, you know, not only from a playing perspective but from a spectator perspective, we need to look for ways to accommodate and, and welcome these people and, and make them feel comfortable. So that's why I say we're, we're the driving force. And as a player, they've, everyone's been supportive, not only at Richmond Football Club and not only uh, also Essendon at the time, as a coach, from from Gillian McLaughlin to you know Andrew Dillon, um, who you know heads up, has helped me a lot throughout the, the, my journey from a multicultural perspective. Everyone's very welcoming, and you know, they want to continue to grow the game. And the best way to continue to grow the game is by venturing out and welcoming people from different walks of life. Yeah, and it's really clear from reading your books that that means not just paying lip service to, you know, inclusion and diversity, but actually having practices and processes in place to ensure that, you know, for example, if, if you need to, to pray at various stages of the day, that you are accommodated to do that. And if, um, you know, it's during Ramadan and, and you need to fast, then there are kind of um, processes that, that allow you to kind of, you know, stick to your faith while still participating in the football world. How did you go about managing those types of... Um, you know things that you would do as part of your religious practice when it wasn't necessarily seen as the norm in the footballing community. It's been true, true to your values and what's important to you. And uh, you know, to me, my, my my greatest purpose and my true purpose of, of life is is worshiping uh, the Creator, the Creator that created me and you and everyone else out there, and and uh, is worthy of worship. And for, for me, in our faith, we follow one God, and we follow that uh, you know certain things that we need to do to to show our gratitude for our existence and part of that is praying five times a day and you know stopping everything that you think is important out there and what makes you busy and centering yourself and and, and facing uh you know a moment where you can reflect and, and thank thank uh the creator for all the blessings and you know we live life a million miles an hour um you know you just need to sometimes just settle a little bit i'm not saying that praise is, is the one thing that everyone should be doing but a form of meditation or something that where you can center yourself and, and calm yourself down. And um, for me, that's that's the privilege that I have. I, I have that at least five times a day where I stop everything, uh, whether it's during the, a, the biggest game of my life or I'm just at home. Um, you know, I stop everything what I'm doing and, and, and really focus on what's the most important part of my life, and that's my connection with the Creator, with God. So, um, yes, as you mentioned, it's it's different, uh, but. These, these, are, these are true to me. These are the most important part of my life, and I'm so glad that I've been able to, to play the game. And, and people from all from all angles have, have accepted me, and, and have actually gone a step ahead and supported me. You know, whenever I've needed a prayer room or a place of you know, just to relax and, and offer my prayers, it's so proactive. And I don't I don't even have to be the one that asks for a prayer room. These these are these are like givens, and people just accept it. And they're always like I said, proactive and willing to make you feel uh, very, very comfortable. So I'm so grateful for that. 
Yeah, and, and you write also in the book about some of the challenges facing footballers when they're contemplating retirement and, you know, losing that very strong kind of bonds and intense bond in a lot of ways that you have within a football club and, you know, how some find it very difficult to adapt um, and adjust to kind of a, for want of a better term, normal life after that. Um, obviously, you're, you haven't retired, as you made very clear um, at the beginning, but you've got the Bashahuli Foundation and, and are doing a whole bunch of other sort of community work as part of that as well. Um, how do you feel about sort of your post-playing future? Is that the kind of thing you'll invest more in, these types of community-level um, kind of foundations and, and, um, and programs? Yeah, I'd, I'd like to see myself taking that next level with it. But in saying that, mate, I, I, I invest a lot of time and effort into these programs because um, it's, it's something that I'm, I've been passionate about all my life and, and hopefully being that role model for the next group of young Muslim boys and girls growing in our society and making them feel welcome, making them feel accepted regardless of whatever career they take. And initially when I started these programs, these academies, it was all about uh, football development. Now it's far greater than that. It's about life coaching. It's about making good decisions in life. And, and above all this is about being proud Australian Muslims. And, you know, wherever you want, whatever you want to do in life, okay, providing you have good values, um, you know, you, you, you can achieve it. You can achieve whatever you want. Do not let your your identity uh, back you down or, or, or keep you in a position where it's just um, you think it's going to be a, a speed hump or it's not going to allow you to fulfil your ultimate dream. So I'm very, very passionate about that and, and I can't wait to be able to, you know, when footy finishes, be able to fully, fully invest in, into this foundation where we've seen that throughout, through our programs it's changed many, many of these young boys and girls' life um, from... Now, from a thinking perspective and, and also decision-making as well. Yeah. Uh, we are just about out of time, but it's um, been an absolute pleasure chatting to you today, Basha. Big congrats on the book and, of course, the third premiership. And, I mean, a lot of people were following your um, kind of family life over the lockdown period as well. And all the best to your family, your mum and um, your new Bab Mohammed as well. And, um, yeah, look forward to seeing you on the footy field next year. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Absolute pleasure. Basha Hooley there, a three-time premiership player with the Richmond Tigers. I'm sure for many of you, um, there's no introduction required. Um, But his new memoir is out, uh, written with uh, the assistance of Walid Ali. um, And you can pick that up at your local bookstore. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. I'm sure, as all of you have heard, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have officially claimed victory in the United States election, which many of us um, had us glued to TV sets all over the past week, trying to get a grasp on the outcome as vote counting trickled in from key states. Amber Jamison is a reporter with BuzzFeed News. She's based in New York, but has been spending a bit of time in Pennsylvania and specifically Philadelphia over the past few days, just as that key state was called for Joe Biden. And that effectively delivered him the presidency. And Amber joins me now on the line. Thanks very much for coming back on Triple R, Amber. Oh, thrilled to be back, Dylan. And so you've just um, arrived back in New York. What have you been up to for the past few days? Well, basically. 
basically, I spent the election um, in New York City, and then the very next day, when we sort of still did not have any kind of result, we were all just waiting to see what was going to to happen and what was going to break down. I am part of the this election, part of the uh, covering protest team for BuzzFeed News, so we were sort of just waiting to see, like, where are there going to be protests, where are their rallies, like, where do I need to go? Uh, and what we were first seeing was... Not huge ones, but there was discussions um, happening in Philadelphia. There was a bit of a, which is, you know, Pennsylvania, which is one of the major swing states. Um, Philadelphia is a huge uh, city there. It's, you know, like a very strong, it's where the Declaration of Independence was signed. It has this, like, really strong U.S. history feel to it. Um, And there was some uh, kind of rallies happening there uh, called Count Every Vote. And then there was sort of a dual rally, which was the Trump rally, which was um, called Stop the Steal. Um, So basically, I went down uh, and what I found was instead this very, really just a handful of people um, on the Trump side predominantly. And then hundreds of people sort of turned out in Philly for the Count Every Vote rally, uh, which was outside the Philadelphia Convention Center, which is where all the votes were being counted. And people basically had a dance party there for three days straight, basically just encouraging poll workers and and making just, you know, like really reiterating that, like, no, we need to wait. We need to make sure all the votes are counted. Part of it was just there was a discussion in Philly about whether, you know, independent poll watchers were close enough to see the polls, to see the votes, which is what the concern about the Trump party um, or the Trump campaign was. Uh, And then also, like, how late you could keep mail-in ballots for. Mm. But really the big thing there was just like it was everybody else, or I was really the lucky one of all of my colleagues. They were covering, like, horrible things in all these different states that were quite terrifying. And I was just in a dance party in Philly for three (laughs) days where everyone was just, like, dancing to Kendrick and Beyonce and just really kind of leaning into this vibe of, like, we are allowing democracy to happen. And then it also became clear that Pennsylvania was going to go Biden, and then it sort of just became like, oh, and this is going to be where the election is decided, and, you know, Philly is the city that's really nailed it. Yeah, fascinating, because those votes were, I mean, the counting was just trickling in, and there was, you know, a clear projection that Joe Biden would um, overtake Trump at some point, but it did take a few days for that to eventually happen. How did the mood on the streets kind of change over that time, and and what was it like, I guess, just when it became very apparent that Joe Biden was in the lead and and would likely um, kind of win the race? Well, it's funny, because I feel like in Philly, they kind of had the day before to celebrate. Here it was like everywhere else around the country, once the election was called on Saturday, that's where everyone like across the country lost it. But in Philly, it was Friday. Mm. Friday morning, and we were waiting. Like I had been literally kind of standing on the street waiting, and then we were going to go to bed. Like I went to bed with the phone next to me, like strict instructions to be called if 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 Philly had called. And it was Friday morning uh, when... Biden took the lead in Pennsylvania. And everyone sort of knew that once he took the lead that that was it. And so that is when, I mean, I turned up and it was like 11.30 in the morning and people were like grinding and twerking. There were people in costume. There were drum lines like led by an Elmo. There were like everyone's carrying signs. Like it is just a huge street party. Absolutely just like happening at like 11.30 in the morning. And then it went, all day long. So yeah. that was, for, for, like, for Pennsylvania, that was, like, when the election was won. Hilariously, the actual moment the 
entire election was called, I was having the complete opposite. I was, I'd been waiting for days to be like at this dance party and ready to be like filming on the streets. So we were kept getting alerts, like could be any minute, could be any minute, could be any minute. Um, but then by Saturday morning, it still hadn't, hadn't happened yet. And I literally was like, I hadn't had coffee. I hadn't had breakfast. I was out of clean clothes because I didn't even expect him to be away for a day or so. And I literally was in the change room of an old Navy trying on just like a clean shirt when I heard someone in the store just scream. And I just thought, oh, no, that's it. And I grabbed my phone and I realized that the election had been called. And I was like, this is where I'm going to be. I'm going to be in the change room of an old Navy. Like, are you kidding me? That's the memory. I immediately just like, oh, like, it's, I mean, I'm still in the shirt now because it was the cleanest shirt I still had and, like, only just got home from Philly. Forever will be this, like, terrible shirt that, you know, whatever. It's like, it's a moment, I'll remember it. Um, but, you know, then it was like, then I'm, like, running uh, down to City Hall, which is kind of where Philadelphia traditionally um, celebrates. And, like, this is a town that, like, you know, like when it wins sporting events, like people go crazy. Mm. Like people like climb the light pole, like the light post. Like it is known for like going hard. And so immediately around City Hall, it was just like a complete like madness of people just beeping horns and screaming and standing up out in sunroofs and just like joy, just dancing in the street. I, I was actually part of this one group that was sort of just like had started on the street and then suddenly there was like hundreds of people, if not thousands. And then like we all just began marching through the streets um, and people would carry, someone was carrying a framed version of the Declaration of Independence, chants of like Black Lives Matter and this is what democracy look like and like F Trump were like, everywhere it was just like the weirdest wildest most yeah. joyful street party i've ever been involved social, in. social distancing was put on hold for a little while i'm imagining social distancing was not great uh <laughs> everyone was in masks that's yeah. the one thing i will say and people were outside we mm. were lucky that the weather was good so yeah. you could just be outside uh definitely yes look that is one thing i'm a little <laughs> bit like oh let's just see how the COVID numbers are going to go in the next couple of days because we already know they're absolutely shockingly horrific here right now. Um, we had 120,000 cases in a day just a few days ago. Mm. Uh, so, yes, I do think that is a concern. And, like, you know, uh, it's it, the thing that I did find interesting is, like, a I am used to being a reporter getting a lot of harassment from people online. That's just sort of part of the job, particularly working somewhere like BuzzFeed, you know, fake news, people like love to say it, I, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. Um, but it was interesting to me that one of the biggest things of when I was, because I was tweeting a bunch of videos um, from Philly, and it was the time when, like, Philly was dancing and excited before anyone, like, where everyone else was still just, like, glued to CNN, terrified of what was going to happen. <laughs> So I think it was this like real moment of positivity for people, but I was getting a huge amount of comments from people saying like, "Oh, as COVID's over, as predicted, this is exactly what Trump said was going to happen. That the mainstream media would never talk about coronavirus again as soon as the election was over." But you know, there were constant warnings from people of from protests and party organisers to keep your masks on, to everyone go get a COVID test, yeah. to like open up and not get too because you know, I mean, people are literally doing like. 
dancing in circles and getting down. They'd be like, Every, just we need some more room, just like a little bit of air. Everyone move around a bit more. <laughs> yeah, you can't promote so, people being, you know, being excited, <laughs> for sure. Exactly. And it's like it's been a long four years. People kind of needed a dance party. Totally, and can absolutely understand that. I'm speaking with Amber Jamison, reporter with BuzzFeed News, talking about her eyewitness account, um, spending some time in Philadelphia as those results rolled in and it became apparent that um, the Democrats had taken the state and, and Joe Biden would be president. And it's interesting to hear your comments on, I guess, your experience as a journalist in the States, because it seems incredibly divided, looking from afar and, and partisan as well. And I've read some kind of some commentary on what the role of the media should be kind of going forward as there's, you know, continual, presumably, you know, misinformation coming out from Trump and others as well in terms of mm-hmm. um, voter fraud and that sort of thing. What's your sense of, of yeah. how the media has responded and, and how that sort of commentary should be approached? I mean, it's really hard because I don't think the media is just one thing. Yeah. I'm just thinking this because I was watching a lot of cable news this week, something I never watch. Uh, and the whole time I'm thinking like, oh, gosh, this news is, TV news is horrible. I hate watching this. You know, like, these are just talking heads. This is horrible to watch. So, like, you know, there is a million different um, – and one of the great things I think is great about the U.S. is that, like – there is a million different journalistic outlets, whether that be online, whether that be TV, like in in print. Like there are so many options and opinions being held and shared. Obviously, we have huge concerns and issues with disinformation and misinformation. And, and I think that has been a thing that people have struggled with immensely for a very long time. I'm very lucky at BuzzFeed. I work with colleagues. Craig Silverman, my colleague, literally coined the term fake news. Dan Vinyenko spends a huge amount of time going through disinformation, explaining what is true and what is not. And I do think it is, there is no easy answer of like, how do we keep, um, I think the one thing main that really is, is that like if Trump is no longer the president, but it doesn't really matter what he says. Um, Obviously he, you know, there's a huge amount of people who support him, but there is a difference in having to report what the president says and having to report what the former president said. Um, And I think that is going to change dramatically a lot of just like the ability to, um, what has to be covered with Trump. I mean, a lot of people also expect that Trump is going to start a pretty big media organization when he leaves office. Uh, that would not surprise me in any way, shape, or form. The man loves television. Um, so I think it, it is, there is no clear answer of what we do or don't do or how we, you know, treat Trump or don't treat Trump. I think the main thing is, is like being clear, explaining things. I think one thing is, is also just constantly providing the context. That's one yeah. thing we try to BuzzFeed News to do every single time. So every single time, like sometimes like you, I'm on the breaking news team. I'd write up an article quick based on what has happened. And then you have to sort of step back and be like, wait, I can't just assume that like me using, I can't give an example of my head, but something that Trump has tweeted that is factually incorrect. You can't just say this is wrong. You have to like explain this is wrong. This is why he's saying it. Here's some historical context. Here's the reminder again of like that he is simply saying this, like this is linked to like QAnon or whatever it is. But just explaining to people every step and every story and every day, just to give people as much context as as they can possibly have and not just assume that people are media literate because we know that they're not. We know that we have major issues with media literacy. And I think social media has been like 
my uh, Instagram for months has been telling me to register to vote. I can't tell it. I'm Australian. I cannot vote. <laughs> and instead, every time I open it, it says, only this amount of days until register to vote. Here is where you can do early voting. Like, I understand the social media networks are trying really hard, but it is, like, very a lot too late for them. And mainstream media has been trying really, really hard to to provide um, a lot more truth within that disinformation whirlpool, but it is not easy at all. Yeah. And, I mean, you mentioned there weren't many pro-Trump kind of rallies or, or protesters out and about in Philadelphia. Um, I guess one of the concerns for people is what happens next, and particularly between now and um, and January yeah. the 20th, I think, when Biden takes office, uh, what, you know, what, yeah. how Trump behaves and, and in what ways he might try to kind of rally his base and what might happen then. What's your sense of, of how kind of maybe people in other states or other areas of the country are responding to this who are kind of, you know, quite strong um, proponents of and supporters of Donald Trump? Well, I'm, I'm genuinely concerned. Uh, to be clear, like me going out to cover, I was covering a dance party in Philly and I was carrying with me the entire time a gas mask, uh, a helmet that like can withstand explosives, uh, first aid kits. I left my bulletproof vest like in the hotel room only because yeah. it couldn't fit all of it in my backpack. But like that is how we are equipped to go out and cover what is happening. And there is a very real concern of violence. We have seen throughout the Black Lives Matter protests, and I don't mean that those protests necessarily being violent. I mean, like, there's been, you know, looting of businesses and so forth, but in terms of, like, violence, the number of people who were shot and killed um, by people defending property or counter-protesters during those summer protests was a very significant number of people. Um, The Department of Homeland Security just last week released a report saying that uh, white supremacist organisations are like the biggest terror threat in the country right now. Uh, and so there is a very, a huge concern. You know, we had a plot to uh, kidnap the Michigan governor just before the election. Mm. And to be clear, when I was at the dance party in Philly, two things happened. One, at midnight on, I think it was either Wednesday or Thursday night, two people were uh, arrested by police who had come to the convention centre, uh, armed and QAnon supporters who were coming to like burst in with guns. I mean, who knows what they were there to do, but who were heavily armed uh, and had turned up at the convention centre where the voting was taking, where the vote counting was taking place. Also, while I was there on, I think, believe it was Friday, there was a bomb threat called in just a few blocks away. Again, I have no idea. It's unclear if that was related, but it was literally two blocks from where the votes were being counted. So I think people are very, very concerned about what will happen next. Um, The Trump supporters that I did speak with truly did not believe that uh, Biden had won. Mm -hmm. Just didn't believe it. To be clear, these are people who believe that so much that they're out protesting when, you know, in the middle of Philadelphia in front of, like, thousands of people who do believe... Like, it's a specific type of person who wants to put themselves in that position um, and then speak to me about it. Uh, But, yes, I mean, I do think we are very genuinely concerned about the rise in... uh, you know, possible violence that we might see, uh, which is not helped when you have a president who tries to claim that the election is rigged and he won it. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's yeah, it's going to be very sort of interesting, and, and we watch and obviously hope that none of that violence really escalates and and happens, and that people aren't harmed. What's sort of your agenda in terms of covering the next um, the next months leading up to inauguration? Are you kind of focusing on any particular states, or do you go back to kind of regular breaking news reporting at BuzzFeed? I mean, honestly, 
going to be part of the, like, while we have a winner and so far we don't have any major concerns, I think we're all still on alert that things may happen Mm. at any moment. Um, So 100% that. And then I think it's just going to be continuing all the things that we, part of the problem with Trump being president and there's nothing to cover apart from him every single day. Like, you can't (laughs) look away and you're like, please, there are so many other things going on. So one thing I'm really keen to look at is just, you know, more talking about what's going on with COVID and the coronavirus and, you know, we've got major issues with... um, with evictions at the beginning, with, I mean, you're talking months with no stimulus bill, there's huge economic issues for people here. Um, so I think there's huge issues and stories to be covered in, and I hope that I'm covering those and not uh, election violence. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons why this weekend was so, you know, full of hope, is that people were like, we know this is, it's been a bad year things could get worse, let's have this like small moment of joy. Absolutely, yeah. And um, it's, you know, it, it's going to be a positive thing for a lot of people not to have, have Trump dominating their news feed, I think it's fair to say. Um, Amber, it's been <laughs> great uh, having you, having a chat to you and having your really valuable on-the-ground insights from, you know, a really sort of pivotal moment um, in history, it feels like. So, um, yeah, thanks so much once again for, for coming on Triple R. Absolutely my pleasure. Thanks so much, Dylan. No worries. And um, stay safe. Don't, uh, yeah, stay away from those nasty protests as well. I'll stay in the old baby yeah. sitting room. That'll be fine. <laughs> all right, cheers. Catch ya. Amber Jamison there, reporter with BuzzFeed News, talking all about her experience covering the election results over in the States, spending some time in Philadelphia over the past few weeks. And, um, yeah, it's obviously lots more to play out, but it's, um, it is a positive thing that we have a result, um, it's fair to say. Triple. Ah. Over the past few years on this show, we've covered progress on the Global Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. The treaty has been strongly pushed by the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN, a Nobel Peace Prize winning organisation that was born here in Australia, and the treaty itself was formally adopted at the UN in 2017. Last month, Honduras became the 50th country to ratify the treaty, reaching a key milestone, which now means the ban will come into force in January next year. Critics have long questioned the tangible impact of the treaty, given no nuclear-armed states have actually signed on, but there is hope that it establishes an important global alliance in pushing back against the disastrous human and environmental consequences of nuclear weapons. Dimity Hawkins is a co-founder of ICANN and PhD candidate at Swinburne University of Technology, and she's written a piece for The Conversation outlining the history of nuclear testing in Australia and the Pacific as we move towards the weapons ban coming into force. And Dimity joins me on the line. Great to have you on Triple R. Lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. And uh, firstly, big congratulations on the treaty being ratified. We know ICANN has played a really crucial role in that global push. So what happens now, I guess, in the lead up to January and um, once the ban is actually in force? Well, once we all stop dancing and being happy about this great uh, this great milestone of getting that 50th ratification, we needed 50 ratifications for that treaty to be able to enter into force. And as you said, it will happen um, on the 22nd of January, so two days after the U.S. president gets handed over, there will be another big milestone in the world, which is this treaty entering into force, which will be great. 
Um, in the lead up to that, of course, we're still pushing for more ratifications. We're still pushing for more um, global consensus to be built. We're also working a lot with banks and with uh, superannuation funds and all of those sorts of things around the world because there are huge implications in this treaty for those sort of financial institutions and so forth. Uh, you know, it's going to be illegal for those countries which have signed on for those for anyone within those countries to be working towards um, nuclear weapons or supporting nuclear weapons infrastructure and so forth. So there are a lot of implications from this treaty, which are really exciting. We're also working a lot with um, our international um, partners around the world. We have partners in over 100 countries around the world, and we're trying to sort of see how the implementation of this treaty will affect each of those countries. And, of course, here in Australia, we're trying to push for our government to start paying attention to this issue. Our government has been most resistant in the times uh, so far uh, to this treaty, and uh, part of that is because of their adherence to an American um, nuclear umbrella and an idea that we need to use the American nuclear weapons as part of our national security. We, of course, challenge this, and we will continue to challenge this, and so we're working with all political parties here in Australia to try and push for this treaty to become part of our international, uh, part of our national laws as well. Yeah, it's interesting, I guess, in that sort of, you know, international context and Australia's reasons for not signing on to the treaty, given our, you know, relationship with the United States and so on. And I mean, a lot of people in Australia have paid a lot of attention to the election over there. And it is really interesting that mm. the new president will come into office, um, you know, just before this um, ban treaty comes into force. But I mean, throughout the, mm. the US election, and campaigning and so on, there wasn't much of a focus at all on really foreign policy so much. And one assumes that the status quo may just kind of, um, we might return to a status quo in some sense in terms of the the resistance to this type of effort from previous, um, you know, American administrations and so on. Do you imagine there are any prospects Mm -hmm. for change as a result of that kind of shift in in, um, power and and relationships between different countries, given what's happened um, in US politics? Well, it's going to be really interesting to watch, isn't it, Dylan? I mean, there's so there's been so much, uh, there's been such a degradation of international, um, you know, diplomacy uh, under the Trump administration so far um, on a whole lot of levels. But certainly, in terms of disarmament diplomacy, there's been such a walking away of bilateral and multilateral um, understandings and of, uh, and of diplomacy in general. So, um, you know, many people are very hopeful of seeing the new presidency bringing back some of that commitment to multilateral diplomacy and those sorts of things. So it it will be interesting to see how that will affect this treaty. Um, Of course, the United States is a vested interest. The United States and Russia still now possess over 90% of the world's nuclear weapons. They are the largest, those two countries are the largest by far of the nuclear weapon states, and it's very much entrenched in the ways that they are doing their defence and their politics and um, and their diplomacy as well. So we'll have to see a major shift in that. But what I am seeing and what I'm observing and what I'm really hopeful about is the number of um, American civil society groups who are really pushing this in America at all sorts of levels, from local governments through to cities and those sorts of things as well. So we're seeing some really big um, shifts in the sort of narratives over there already. Um, And, you know, some of our great campaigners over there have, you know, put forward um, nuclear-free cities um, 
proposals and, you know, to, for cities' appeal, for the ICANN cities' appeal. And so we're seeing, you know, big cities starting to join that effort. We're seeing superannuation funds and banks having to be approached about this about this treaty as well. So, you know, we're seeing some really big shifts. I do think that we know that the Americans are going to have to take notice of this. We know that they have taken notice of this. Just before we got the 50 ratifications, the Americans had come out to every single nation that had signed on to the treaty so far and asked them to please withdraw their signatories mm. and withdraw their ratifications. They know We know that this is affecting them. We know that they are worried about this. So we will see more... Um, we will see more on this. We will see more conversations on this. For those states like ours, for Australia and, and the NATO states, and those who are hiding under a U.S. nuclear umbrella, there are going to be some very interesting conversations in coming years once this treaty enters into force. Um, there will be some very interesting conversations to be had. I think it's interesting as well, given Australia's geographic location and um, and the nature of um, you know how nuclear testing here and in the Pacific has mm-hmm. impacted on communities as well, which which your article goes into you know in in some depth. But I think one aspect of the the uh, treaty that people perhaps um, uh, don't understand or hasn't been as kind of written about as much as kind of the big ticket item of trying to ban nuclear weapons is mm-hmm. the commitment to offering assistance and remediation to those who have been affected by nuclear testing, mm. what might we see as a result of this um, ban coming into force in terms of assisting those who, you know, continue to suffer um, health impacts and, and so on uh, as a result of, of that testing that's gone on? Well, this is one of the great stories about this treaty, and you're quite right. It doesn't get as, as much uh, of the press as the, as the ban does. Um, but the treaty also has, as you say, these positive obligations to um, offer victim assistance and environmental remediation to those places where nuclear weapons have been used, so Japan, for example, or for those places where nuclear tests have taken place. And that that includes Australia um, and many places across the Pacific as well. What it means, we don't yet fully know this will be part of the implementation of the treaty so that's what we will be looking forward to we will be looking forward to seeing how this will take place what it does do is it obliges those states who have signed on to the treaty to for those who have had had weapons testing in their countries it sort of helps them to sort of say right well we're going to take control of these spaces and we're going to design programs for um, environmental remediation where necessary Uh, so for example if you think of places like where they've abandoned nuclear waste like the dome in Marshall Mm. Islands which has 35 swimming Olympic size swimming pools full of highly radioactive nuclear waste which are at the moment under threat through climate change and rising seas and so forth. So those sorts of places were um, the Marshall Islands to uh, sign on to and ratify on to the um, treaty. Those sorts of places would have that country able to sort of design programs around that and to call on other states' party to come and help them with the remediation and the victims' assistance. So that's, that's a really exciting aspect of this treaty. I think the other aspects of the treaty that are really useful is the acknowledgement of the disproportionate harm of nuclear weapons on um, Indigenous communities in particular and also on women and girls through um, ionising radiation, the disproportionate harm that it causes to women and girls. 
that's going to shift a whole lot of conversations around the impacts of these weapons and around the ways in which we want to use that whole, um, understand that whole industry. Um, so I think that those things are really positive and really exciting, and a lot of that will be unfolded as we see the treaty being implemented. I'm speaking with Dimity Hawkins, co-founder of ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, all about the um, upcoming ban which will come into force, um, ban on nuclear weapons that will come into force on the 22nd of January next year, and also the um, environmental and, and health consequences of nuclear testing in Australia and the Pacific. And I mean, as we know, the current federal government in Australia has not signed on to the treaty. The ALP has said it would. And I mean, given that, um, you know, particularly Indigenous communities who continue to kind of suffer the consequences of nuclear testing, um, you know, in and around Maralinga, for example, and what we know about the Pacific, could you imagine that if, um, you know, we had a change of government and did sign on to through the treaty because the ALP said that it would, would there mm-hmm. be kind of really substantial moves and kind of cooperation, I suppose, between Australia and other countries in our region to advance some of those kind of remediation processes to assist those who have been um, most impacted? I would hope so, Dylan. I, I would hope that we would have a much better understanding and a better um you know, a better collaboration with those places in our region and also within our own country and have a much more honest look at it. Here in Australia, for example, we we did have a major royal commission in the mid-80s, which was looking at the British nuclear testing program. And through that royal commission, there was a real attempt to get the British to open up their archives and to tell us um, more truthfully exactly what had gone on and what sort of um, you know what sort of records they had of where the waste was buried or you know the, the the yields of the weapons and all of those sorts of things it was a major major step forward in getting some accountability around the nuclear testing program but there are still a lot of questions and there was a lot of science that we didn't know then and there's probably still a lot of science we're yet to discover around this stuff but actually having the ability to examine these things closely and honestly will be an enormous, an enormous step forward. Um, and also a, a shifting of the denial that happened around harm. So there was consistent denials of harm um, from the nuclear testing states when they were testing in the Pacific. They would continuously uh, deny that there was any harm to people and so forth. And here in Australia, even, the testing programs were denying any harm to Aboriginal people, for example, who were very exposed in some of those tests. Um, So to see this narrative change where we are actually listening to those communities which were in the, you know, literal um, fallout areas. Uh, We'll be able to listen to those communities. We'll be able to give some time to that. We'll also hopefully be able to bring some science to it. It's all a long time ago in some senses, but it's actually the very nature of nuclear means that these things happen intergenerationally. They stick around for a really long time. Some of the materials that are used in these nuclear tests last for thousands of years. So we need to actually get our heads around that. We need to actually understand fully who was affected, where was affected, and what the effects still are in those communities and those places, and indeed across our whole region, because we really did 
get a huge impact across here, across the Pacific. Yeah, it's interesting too to hear you talk um, earlier about the, I guess, emphasis on engaging with um, businesses and, you know, superannuation funds and so on um, in terms of sort of their role in in leading this push uh, against nuclear um, nuclear weapons. Um, we've seen sort of in relation to climate change, you know, eventually a whole bunch of business groups come on board and, and support a transition to renewable energy, for example. Mm-hmm. Is there a similar shift happening or could you imagine kind of there being a real kind of collective push towards this effort? Yeah, absolutely. There's a there's a great um, campaign that started up here, which uh, ICANN is a part of, and it's also with the Medical Association for Prevention of War, um, and it's called Quit Nukes, and that's looking at this treaty and also talking about divestment, so exactly that, you know, how those sorts of banks and super funds and so forth might be able to hasten, um, you know, the... the um, the dissociating from those nuclear weapons manufacturers and so forth. And we're seeing some really great initiatives coming out of that. We're seeing some some places get involved and, and uh, taking responsibility on that. We're seeing a lot more sit-up-and-take notice as well. But right around the world, there's another campaign called Don't Bank on the Bomb, which is also associated with ICANN. And so right around the world, they're putting out reports to banks, to superannuation funds, to all of those sorts of things as well. And we are seeing that divestment mentality being picked up all, all across the world as well. So it's, you know, it's early days here compared to, say, with the coal campaigns, those sorts of divestment, or mm. tobacco, those sorts of divestment campaigns that we've seen previously. But it's certainly starting to take off. And I think we'll see a lot more of that. I guess my, my message is always that at every level of wherever you are in the world and, and whatever your business is, you know, whether you're an artist or you're a banker or you're a teacher or you're a, a person um, sitting at home drinking martinis, you know, good luck to you. Um, you know, we've all got a role to play in this. We can all do something about this and we should all expect something to be done about this because these weapons are pointed at us. Yeah. You know, these weapons are pointed at everyone that you love, every place that you love. You know, every moment of your day is under threat because of these weapons. And it's just, you know, it's just insane that we're still in that position now in 2020. We've just come through a presidency, and we're not over it yet, let's say, but mm. in the United States that has seriously put the world at risk, and he has access to these weapons. You know, we've really got to think about there are no safe hands for the world's worst weapons and we really have to get rid of them as a matter of urgency. And every single one of us has a role to play in that, I think. I really genuinely do think. Yeah, well, well hopefully you can sit back and have at least one martini to celebrate the 50th ratification <laughs> um, in the lead-up to that ban coming into force. I think it's very well-deserved. But, um, yeah, uh, c- congratulations on all the work you're doing. And it sounds like there's still, of course, a whole lot of work to be done. But um, it's been great chatting with you yeah. today on Triple R. Oh, you too, Dylan. It's lovely to chat to you and to all your listeners as well. Yeah, cheers. We'll catch you again soon. Okay, great. Thanks. Bye. Dibbity Hawkins, their co-founder and current board member of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. And um, you can read her piece in the conversation um, all about the impacts of nuclear testing in Australia and the Pacific in the lead up to that ban coming into force on January 22nd next year. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday.
Hope you enjoyed the show. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.